listeners and welcome to an episode of the Dave Recruit podcast. My name is Brett Lawton. Today I'm sitting with artist Nina Tor and we're going to be discussing her latest exhibition titled Wayfinding. Nina Tor is an artist, illustrator and lecturer based in Pretoria. She completed her degree at the Parsons School of Design in New York in 2010. Tor then returned to South Africa to expand her artistic practice. Nina Tor has had to date eight solo exhibitions, with Wayfinding being her master's exhibition that is currently on at Devika Projects. Nina Tor's work explores mental landscapes inhabited by characters pursuing a journey. Her images imply open-ended narratives that invite the viewer to participate and engage with them on a personal level. Nina has worked in collaboration with the Devika Workshop to create a number of watercolor monotypes. In 2018, Nina produced new etchings with the team at the Devicate Workshop for the R&B Turbine Art Fair in 2019. So today we're going to be seeing and discussing Nina's latest project, which was Wayfinding, and it was all part of her master's exhibition. How was it studying your master's and how has things been going since? It was, um, it was quite traumatic towards the end. <laughs> um, no, it, it was good. I sort of started my master's for some reason without knowing what I was going to write about. Um, I actually can't remember why I started doing it, to be perfectly honest. But it made it quite difficult to get started without a topic. And I think I drove my supervisors crazy. Um, I've always struggled to talk about my work, basically. Um, I don't like writing artist statements or abstracts or talking about my work, really. So I wanted to look at how art communicates without words. So I got interested in tacit knowledge, eventually. There's the, the famous term by Michael Polanyi, which says, uh, we can know more than we can tell. Um, so I wanted to get into how images communicate without word and how we think non-verbally. And then that took me on quite a journey. So it was really interesting. It was definitely one of the most meaningful things I've ever done. And I had quite a turnaround at the end of the Masters, which was surprising. I, I'd been stuck in a certain mindset and then towards the end I had to sort of discard a whole bunch of my beliefs. And I think that was the traumatic part, but also it was really liberating because since then I've had so many new ideas for my artwork because um, it had sort of reached a point where I, I felt like I was doing the same things and the same characters over and over again. And so the research uh, really helped me get past that. So yeah, it was, it was really quite amazing. It was, it was something I'd been dreading doing for about 10 years and then eventually got started and yeah, it was really rewarding. Mm, no, that's amazing and well done for doing it and completing it. And obviously it's an honor to have all your work on show with David Crew Projects. So in terms of like this understanding of meaning uh, and research, is mm -hmm. most of it done through the physical making? Is there like a different kind of research process that you take on? Well, well, basically the approach that I've always had is that I, I make the work before I understand what it means. Um, so that's why I always felt it was difficult to talk about it because I would make the work and then figure out what it means and then talk about it as though I knew what I was doing all along and I always found that a little bit dishonest. Yeah, I, I ended up writing about how meaning arises during the process. So I suppose it is a, I um, went for a kind of practice-based research in autoethnographic so that you could write about things as you discover them, um, which was quite helpful. But the, the research is mostly, or at least it used to be mostly visual. Um, I would just take in as many images as possible and then they sort of assimilate unconsciously and then sort of somehow get externalized when one's sketching and thinking. Generally, I don't construct meaning. I, I, I do and then I figure out what it means. So I don't really know what kind of research that is, but 
It's the sort of way of researching. Well, <laughs> I've, I've actually found that a lot of people do work in this way, but art school often produces this rhetoric that you talk about it. You're supposed to know what you're doing sometimes. So it almost felt like coming out to say that I don't actually have a clue what I'm doing. I only have an inkling. And so, yeah, it was quite liberating to, to finally just admit that I don't actually know what I'm doing. But the more you do it, the, the more you get clarity, I guess. And it's okay to, to only discover what you're doing after you've made it. It's sort of part of the reason why you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of artists actually will identify with that. And it's, it's quite courageous to admit that off the bat and just be honest. And I think that's also what the appeal of your work is, is that there's something very authentic that, that shines through it. And then when you speak about meaning, you say you don't necessarily assign meaning, but then your titles do kind of allude to some sort of meaning. Um, can you elaborate on the titles? Yeah, the titles are generally the, the last thing I do. The process is something that I've borrowed from my friend Micah Bucket, who's also an artist, and um, it's just a really good trick I learned from her is going through song lyrics and track listings um, on iTunes or whatever. And basically you just contemplate an artwork you, that you're trying to find a title for and then the minute you see a phrase that something that I've used in my masters throughout is um, these what I call clicks and pangs if if a title clicks or yeah if something if it feels right if it fits then I use it uh, as a title for an artwork so again it's a kind of intuitive approach it's not constructed but you sort of wait for these happy accidents when things kind of align in some way yeah again I wait for that intuitive click and then usually a few hours later or sometimes a few weeks later I figure out why that title clicked. Yeah, it's this very slow <laughs> release meaning throughout mm. and I, I suppose sometimes it's because it's because the work ends up being sometimes either really personal or really stupid or silly. Um, sometimes you don't want to actually admit how either basic the idea is or obvious the idea is or how personal it is um, and sometimes you, one just ends up hiding these things from yourself for whatever reason. Yeah, if it weren't for these intuitive clicks um, I don't know if I'd be able to reveal these things because I'd probably try to hide it if I knew what I was actually doing. Yeah, no, of course. And then in terms of, so you speak of this intuition that, that takes place, is there anything that you do to tap into that, uh, say, like subconscious or natural flow of finding those connections or does it yeah. just happen? <laughs> um, it doesn't always just happen. Sometimes it's um, incredibly laborious and nothing arises, but... A method that I really like is something that I came across in, um, there's this book by Keith Johnston. It's about improvisation and theatre. The book is called Impro. I really like the approach of improvisation because the, the whole premise is that you um, say yes to whatever arises. You're not allowed to block anything. So anything someone comes up with, you just go with it. You buy into that world. Um, and he sort of uses the same approach with imagination. He's, he has this idea that imagination should be as effortless as perceiving. And I really liked that. I thought... Well, that sort of makes sense because we all kind of experienced that when we were kids. Um, you didn't have to think things up. It was just everything was exciting and interesting and you could just turn a pile of sand into a mountain easily. Johnson said, well, well being a creative is more about learning how to stop blocking out that imagination, not to learn how to think things up, but how to just stop blocking it out. Um, so there's also this poet Friedrich Schiller had this um, the watcher at the gates of the mind and he says creative people have just learned to stop listening to that that watcher that sort of interrogating force that tells you your ideas are silly or stupid or you know pretentious and if you learn to switch that off then generally there's a lot of information there that one has access to so it's a kind of active imagination but uh, sometimes this material is really boring um, or uninteresting 
um, and other times it's it's really fascinating. When the the images don't arrive, then I tend to look at references. I look at old medieval illustrations, alchemical illustrations, natural history, old Netherlandish um, sort of icons and things like that. For some reason, I'm I'm drawn to this imagery, sort of mythological imagery. Um, and then I again I sort of just wait for images that click in in some way that makes sense, even if I don't know why. And then I kind of combine them in my own ways, assimilate them. Yeah. yeah so I guess I mean that's something I spoke a lot in my, about in my masters is I, I follow these clicks and bangs basically. Mm. It's funny, like you you're saying that you know you, you you don't know you don't really know you figure it out as you go along, but you speak f very considered and um, intentional about this figuring out process. Mm -hmm. It's all you know. It's almost as if that's become the process. Yes. It's the whole journey which is amazing and um, again like that mentioning of a narrative that almost does look like these characters and figures in your artworks are on some sort of journey mm -hmm. um, and a lot of those locations that are featured in your images I mean they, they look like some ethereal sp like space or place um, do you use references for for those um, is there like a location that does inspire this world that you live in um, yeah, these landscapes, I, I think the, the more barren landscapes are definitely informed by the Karoo. I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid. My dad's side of the family is from the Karoo. Um, but, but I find, yeah, the landscapes tend to be what I kind of learned during my masters when I really started digging into where these things might be coming from is I suppose they reflect internal states. So when it's a more desert type of landscape, it's, it probably means, you know, it's a little bit more ex existential or um, deserted in some way. Um, this is what I mean by the more you realize how obvious the ideas actually are. Um, whereas, you know, when the characters appear in water, and then that becomes a kind of metaphor for feeling like you're drowning or, or lost or something like that. And when you have the more lush green landscapes, then there's more abundance and things like that. So it, it all depends on my state of mind. But again, I, I don't think, oh, I'm feeling like this, so I'm going to draw this landscape, it, it happens on its own. Um, it, it just, it's what feels right at the moment, and then afterwards you, you realize why why you did it. Right, it's, it's a really be beautiful intuition, and I think um, your students, you do, you do lecture at mm -hmm. Open Window um, Institutes in Pretoria, yes. um, and I do think your students probably benefit from that. I must say, I would be grateful to have somebody that would encourage that methodology um, <laughs> the problem is it's very hard to teach because um, I, str I grapple with this a lot because when you're teaching students you um, you can't just um, say okay go do what you got to do I'll see you in eight weeks and then we talk about it you have to sit through the process with them and then they need to be able to verbalize what they're going through and what the steps are and what they're aiming for and that's completely the opposite of how I work so it's um, yeah, I grapple with this because I would love to gift the students the same kind of intuition and approach that I work with, but not everybody works in that way. I mean, um, and also while you're learning, you have to kind of do things consciously and specifically so that later, uh, I mean, often w when you're learning, you have to apply things deliberately, but only later once you've sort of internalized, does it become intuitive. So I've been wondering lately, because I think about, you know, the best teaching approach a lot and I, um, I don't know what it is. I can't figure out if one can jump straight into that intuition or if you have to be a little bit more um, force, if you have to force a little bit while you're studying. And I'm starting to accept the fact that you have to 
be more conscious while you're learning that uh, you, you have to sort of earn that kind of abandon that you get later. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, it's like, you know, riding a bicycle or learning any new skill. You have to do it deliberately when you first do it. Um, it only becomes intuitive later. Um, and I mean, we have this romantic idea of intuition that we're just born with it and we just know things. But intuition is always based on prior knowledge. Um, so, you, yeah. I love that. I really mm. do. And I mean, also, because uh, hearing you speak and stuff about the, the watcher almost or the mm. observer, I, I know I recently read an article about the left and right brain and mm. tapping in and out. Well, not in and out, but like trying to, as you say, abandon that thinking yes. and just do. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's quite special that you as a lecturer or as an educator would like to encourage that in your students. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular work that you're especially fond of in, in your master's exhibition? Um, yes, there's a piece. It was the very last piece I made. Um, it's called Placeholder Number Something, I can't remember, um, World Builder. Um, and it's 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 got a new um, theme in it, which is a little house. And I, I don't think since I started um, working in this style, I don't think I've ever drawn um, a construction, like a, a, a man-made thing. Um, so I'm just excited about that. I mean, it's a little thing, but I've always drawn organic creatures or animals and um, people and drapes and landscapes. and Because um, I think I wanted everything to remain timeless, like you couldn't pin it down to a specific um, century or something like that. Whereas this little house, um, gives it a, a time and I, for some reason I was afraid of doing that but now I'm not anymore um, so these are the kinds of little surprises that are coming out of the end of the research and I, I don't really know what it means yet but I'm, I'm excited about it mm. yeah and it takes I mean it takes a lot of courage to figure that out and to do something different and see where it may lead well it's fun because it's, mm -hmm. it's not fun doing the same thing the whole time Mm. But I mean, the other thing that I'm excited about is in the, these latest pieces that I've been doing at the beginning of the year is um, I've been extracting, um, creating little icons of previous things that I've done. So I have almost these, um, I'm starting to look at this idea of, sure, if I should even go into this, but reality as a, a kind of interface. I've, I was listening um, to this mathematician talk about it on Sam Harris. I've forgotten the mathematician now, but there's this idea that... Um, what we experience as reality is actually just an interface because we can't actually understand the, uh, if you extend the metaphor, the code behind it. Um, so I'm liking the idea of these little tabs and icons that represent um, something else, these sort of symbols, uh, but you don't actually know what they represent. Um, you don't know what's behind them. Um, so I'm starting to explore that. So that's something that's come out of the Masters is before I was actually so afraid to even know what my work meant. I, I thought that I had to be completely in the dark in order to even make it. And um, sort of at the end of my dissertation, I realized um, that's not a prerequisite. I can also um, be a little bit more deliberate. Um, so that's also been liberating. Mm. And in terms of your own, your own arts education, I suppose, like learning how to do or create the way that you do in terms of illustration and design and drawing, um, is there was there a particular moment that kind of sparked your excitement and decision to pursue the arts? I suppose a couple. Uh, it, I never really had other options. I mean, I was always the art kid, um, uh, so I never considered doing anything else. But I, I think my first year of university was really formative because we we were thrown into. Uh, I mean, in, in South Africa, when you go study 
fine arts, you go straight into fine arts. Whereas in the States, they throw all the design, architecture, fashion, art kids into a foundation year and you have to take um, design courses and software and things like that. It just forces you to try things that you wouldn't have if you had gone straight into art. And um, I had this really great lecturer in first year, um, John Gerard, um, and he just he was one of the first people who really forced me to try things that I wasn't comfortable with. Um, like uh, I was going to build something out of cardboard because I knew I had to build something out of cardboard. And he's like, well, why don't you learn woodworking? And then I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I could do that. And then I learned woodworking and I, I fell in love with it. But I think up until that point, I sort of stayed in my comfort zone and I only did things I was good at. Um, and he sort of pushed me to do things that I'm not good at and learn new things. And that was, yeah, just that, that curiosity of, of learning new things was, was really formative. Mm, and it's wonderful. I mean, that's obviously an inspiration in terms of a mentor for you. Mm. And it's cool that you're able to do that for the people that you're lecturing now, hopefully. Uh, I mean, I, I do see it. Um, so many of the students came to support the exhibition opening and, you know, spoke fondly of, of your way of teaching and stuff, which is wonderful to hear too. Um, but I also wanted to ask, so you, you, you mentioned now woodwork and stuff, and you've got quite a close collaboration with Vessel Snayman, mm. um, the framing in particular. I mean, yes. it's quite unique. Uh, how did that come about, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been familiar with Vessel's work for years because he started out in the Biscuit Mill in Cape Town. I remember um, just when I was starting with my career, I saw, you know, his framing really stood out. Um, the, the little... What does one call it? Is it a spleen or something? Um, yeah, or, on the, um, the corners. Yeah, I don't know if I'm giving I it the right word. But spleen is That sounds like a body part, though. But <laughs> anyway, um, but <laughs> I've always loved his framing. And then, um, but it was then, uh, yeah, a, a few years ago, I, I've, I've been painting these arches for a while. But then at some point, it just occurred to me that, I, you know, I can frame it in that way as well. And so when Vessel moved to Joburg, um, then I thought, well, this is... A chance to to try this out now. I'd had a mirror in my house that I grew up in that was shaped in that way. It also had a dark uh, curved wooden frame. Um, and I often find just things that you just happen to be surrounded with find their way into your work um, just organically. So I'm, I'm guessing that might have come from there and also just um, icons and things around my house. So yeah, I've, I absolutely love woodwork and metalwork and sculpture. Um, I just don't really have the space or facilities to do it. So Working with Vessel, it gets to it's a it's a nice outlet to sort of um, work with that more sculptural side, mm. um, and um, yeah, it's become such a collaboration because I mean he's an artist himself. He's just got such a keen eye and he's got such interesting ideas that one would just never think of. So I like seeing what he does, and then I feed off of that, and then I try it out, and then the ideas feed into each other. So it's I mean I feel like he's a, a co-author um, in his works. Uh, the frames have become so important. Mm. No, it's 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 also wonderful to hear uh, the kind of weight that you put on that collaboration and the inspiration from other other artists um, and the input that that benefits each other. Um, you've also collaborated with Daybreakit Workshop in the past on a number of um, different projects. Mm. Uh, your most recent etching series titled Admirer, Agnostic Dog, and Burden Dog, and each of those was an edition variation of ten which means that there were 10 editions and then you did something slightly different to each of them um, to kind of make them unique. Did you enjoy that process, if you don't mind? So I d actually didn't enjoy it, but... but um, <laughs> Honest, that's no, what but, we want. <laughs> but there's a but. Um, 
Well, I basically I, I'd done etching as a student and I really enjoyed it. And then um, I was excited to try it again, um, but I didn't quite finish the etchings. So, but we printed it anyway, and then we decided, well, let me hand color them um, to finish them. Um, and then I thought, um, okay, well, that sounds cool. Um, but I didn't realize just how many prints it was um, because the, the plate was divided into, I think, four different artworks that we then cut up. And then it was an addition of about 10 artworks per plate. And then it just ended up being tons and tons of drawing the same thing over and over again, basically, and coloring in the same thing over and again. And it drove me crazy, just the amount of time it took. But it was really one of the more valuable things I've done. Um, because in that repetition, it forced me to just try subtle different things each time. And at some point I got so fed up that I started collaging and just trying silly little things that I would never try just because I was so out of ideas. Um, and I think then that really fed into um, the work that I made after that. And then also just seeing the way that Vessel framed those works because then you guys um, took the work to Vessel to be framed. And then he somehow just, uh, like I remember he framed one it was like a blue backing and a blue frame and somehow this work just came alive and I, I thought very little of the work before and then somehow with this frame it just completed it and it, it's those kinds of things that I think it was just it was a real on this next artwork with the frame in mind and things like that very interesting process and I remember when I first started doing it Joel told me this exact thing is is how this kind of printmaking often really helps people um, further their process um, and, and she was absolutely right um, and it was, there was a lot of trudging, but it was super valuable. And I mean, most valuable things are, are difficult. Mm. Yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, it's quite a poetic way of explaining that process. Cause it is, again, you've been quite honest in saying it's difficult, but there's something positive that comes out of it in the end. Mm. And I think I've seen how that influence of collage as well has, you know, shown itself in your master's exhibition, which Definitely. is awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I've got one more question for you, mm. which is, have you heard of an artist named Andy Wyeth? Of course. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so can yeah. you elaborate a little bit on that story? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, when I, I mean, I, I studied fine arts and then I, um, in the States and then I came back to South Africa. Then I, I first started teaching stop motion animation for a year or so, but then I suddenly got this job at the open window teaching illustration. Um, and then I thought, oh dear, I can't teach illustration if I've never actually made an illustration before. But at that point I was a little bit elitist about illustration and art and I thought, art is higher than illustration. So I thought I'm not gonna do illustrations under my own name, I'll do them under a pseudonym. I, I picked Andy Wyeth, um, which I thought was a, a kind of hip, hipster knockoff of Andrew Wyeth. Um, and I created this little persona under that name. I can't remember how it happened, exactly mm -hmm. why I picked that name. He's, I mean, I, I think he's a wonderful artist. I, I love the work, but it's, I, I wouldn't say he's one of my favorites. I, I think I just like the sound of his name, to be honest. So I worked under this mask for, I think, two or three years, but then I eventually realized that um, the work that I'm doing under this mask is actually the work that I want to be doing. So then I, I discarded the pseudonym. That oh. is super cool. <laughs> it has got a n nice ring to it, but mm. I must say Nina tours better. <laughs> honest, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, hopefully there'll be some future collaborations between you and the David Cook Workshop. Definitely. Um, and maybe there can be another challenge that will push your practice further. And Yes, and then I'll be really frustrated and angry, but then I'll be thankful <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. yeah, and congratulations again on your master's exhibition. It looks thank beautiful. You. And yeah, thank you for choosing us to share it with and to collaborate with. And we wish you all the best going thank forward. You. Thank you for hosting me. It's been great. Of course. <laughs> cool. 
Thank you for listening to the David Crook Podcast. The David Crook Podcast is a production of David Crook Projects. David Crook Projects has locations in Johannesburg and New York. It is an alternative arts institution dedicated to encouraging and raising awareness of careers in the arts and related literature and media. It also promotes contemporary culture in a dynamic, collaborative environment. In Johannesburg, David Crook Projects has exhibition project spaces as well as adjacent bookstores located at 151 Jan Smuts Avenue and Arts on Main. The David Crook Workshop produces fine arts editions with William Kentridge, Diane Victor, Deborah Bell and a number of other artists that are both South African and international. For more information on David Crook Projects and our artists, visit our website at www.davidcrookprojects.com. Follow us on Instagram as well as Facebook and Twitter. You can find more episodes of the David Crook Podcast on Podomatic, iTunes, as well as our website.